happy that you got what you wanted. I remember on my first day you said that could happen to me if I played my cards right. Are you getting sentimental? Oh my God. Don't worry, I'm sure we'll see each other all the time. If we don't, I just have to say... Hi, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. I'm horror novelist and media critic, Gretchen Felker-Martin, and with me is my illustrious co-host, Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic, and I'm the author of Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse, which is available right now at mzsworldstore.com. And today we're going to talk about the episode of Mad Men in which a British dude gets his foot run over and ultimately cut off by a lawnmower. (laughs) This is a show about advertising, by the way. (laughs) What a wonderful sentence that you just uttered. Because there's nothing else. I I think we'll we'll probably zero in on this aspect. Maybe above all others, I'm not sure. But in the entirety of Mad Men from start to finish... There's literally nothing else even remotely like this scene in which this guy gets his foot run over by a lawnmower. There's nothing like it at all. No, there's, there's, I think the closest that the show ever comes is the, the suicide in later seasons. And that's, that's so different tonally and not gory. It's just viscerally upsetting and sad. Right. It's gruesome without being bloody and it's, and it's, 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 hugely depressing as opposed to straight up splatter punk yep (laughs) yeah it's splatstick it's like something out of evil dead 2 yes it's exactly like that and of of course there's that incredible well there's so many great visuals around the scene but the one that always comes to mind first is some of the admin standing together with a couple of secretaries and just you know laughing and joking and then all of a sudden they are Covered in blood. It's amazing. And and my favorite detail there is uh, Paul Kinsey, one of the main characters, is witnessing this. He had his arm kind of folded over his the front of his shirt. And so after the blood spray and whatever else gets sprayed, like bits of clothing and bone, who knows what the fuck it is. It's gross. Right. Um, he moves his arm and there's a patch of pure white left on his shirt. Oh, it's because, so good. Uh, just that little detail, it's uh, just gets me fired up that someone was like thoughtful enough to capture that and make that a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean we we talk about this all the time, but it's a show doing more than it has to because the image on its own is stunning, shocking. But when you add this little human touch, something that you wouldn't think of in the moment, but which a person who is standing there unaware of what was about to go down would certainly be doing, you know, I'm sure there's all sorts of little gestures and poses and expressions occurring in that room that would change the way that that event affected a body. And it's so thoughtful. It's, it's good blocking is what it is. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. And I think that 
in this moment of pure chaos in this office, when a, a drunken secretary is taking a John Deere riding lawnmower for a joyride and runs over the foot of effectively what was to be her new boss, in that chaos, you see the control with which the rest of the show is made and deployed, sort of. One thing that I noticed when I was revisiting it for this podcast is the buildup to the actual lawnmower incident is running parallel with the conversation between Peggy and Joan, because this is, in addition to being a sort of welcoming party for like the new their new British owners. It is a Joan's, goodbye party for it's Joan. It's a goodbye party for Joan, who has uh, suppo- is supposedly basically retiring to be a housewife, although she knows at this point that her good-for-nothing husband did not get the job that he wanted, so she'll have to go back to work. She just can't come crawling back to this ad agency. She feels like she can't anyway. And Peggy is trying to have this moment where she's trying to thank her for the advice that she was given, even though she didn't usually follow it. And there's been, you know, throughout the series, there's been this weird push and pull of, of respect and affection. And then tension and disagreement between those two characters, which is very common in Mad Men. One of the things that makes it so good is that there's really no relationship that can be with the exception of possibly Don and, and Duck Phillips, there's really no relationship that can be boiled down as to like, oh, this is this person's nemesis, or this is this person's best friend forever. Like, it's all modulated so that you kind of get the, the the full panoply of the ways human beings can interact with each other in a workplace. They have extremely adult workplace relations. Yes. Like, yes. You know, you've talked about this before, but one of the series defining strengths is that it so seldom ratchets anything up to 11. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no ginned up artificial drama with characters screaming at each other at the drop of a hat. And just sort of manufacturing more emotion than there actually is. Right. And and this sort of uh, semi-hostile takeover of the agency by their new British owners is a good case in point because they just kind of have to roll with it. No one's, no one's, no one's standing and banging their shoe on the desk and declaring we will not let this stand. They're actually celebrating something that's not good for them. Because that's just how you do it in the corporate world. And I think in addition to watching the, the, the Joan and Peggy stuff play out and how they kind of slowly have to raise their voices to be heard above the din of the lawnmower, which just makes it extra tense, like that is perfectly done. And so is the the fundamental introduction of this new character, whose name is Guy. Who, who is the guy? Is so great. <laughs> it's, it's so good. <laughs> the title of the episode is literally "Guy Walks, walks into, into an Advertising Agency." Oh, you, get, you get first of all, it's literal. Second of all, it's a Mad Men reference. Guy walks into a psychiatrist's office. Oh, it's it's uh, it's a Sopranos in, uh, reference. That's what I meant to yep. say. You you figured it out. Um, yeah. and, but the point that I'm trying to make is that this until this moment has been. Just a, a perfectly executed introduction of what seems to be a major new character, a major new dynamic within the workplace, a major overhaul of how the show operates. And Mad Men is a show which has done this before and will do it again. 
and it lulls you into the sense of like, okay, I'm going to watch this episode. I'm going to see how this plays out. We're going to meet some new people. We're going to learn some new things. We're going to get the lay of the land. We're going to see how Don and everybody reacts to this new scenario. And you're just kind of sitting back watching something, the start of what you think is something new and, and long-term play out. And then the lawnmower cuts that off. It, yeah. It, and it, you, uh, you mentioned evil dead earlier and it's funny the camera work as the secretary Lois drives the lawnmower sort of stop and start haltingly along the edge of the office pool looks a lot like something out of a Sam Raimi movie. It's close up. It's harshly angled. It moves in sort of jerky, unpredictable jumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I, the show is, is, is seldom violent, certainly never violent as we've discussed in previous episodes on the level of basically every other major new golden age of television canonical show. Like, right. It was a really intentional choice by Matthew Weiner and the writers at the beginning that this right. would not and, be a violent show. And it makes a world of difference in uh, when there is the occasional fist fight or when Don brings a gun to meet his secret brother, you're like, is this, is it going to happen now? Is it going to happen now? Is this it? Right. And it never really is. And for it to happen this one time, for there to be bloodshed this one time, and for it to be so gross and spectacular, oh, I just, to to be able to pull something like this off and then never do it again and never have done it before, like, what a, we're just going to do this pure, one time. Yeah. Oh, oh. What a flex. Yes. Yes. It's a flex is what it is. Yes. It really is. You know, like, look at this. We could do like black comedy splat stick if we wanted, and we could do it pretty much better than anyone's ever done it. Yeah. Because it is very, very funny. Yeah. It's I mean, very funny. They dabbled in this, especially in the early seasons of Breaking Bad with the, you know, the bodies falling through the bathtub when the sulfuric acid eats through the porcelain yeah, the, or whatever. Right. Right. And it, it's pretty funny. It's it's grotesque. It, it but it goes on for so long, and it's like a, a whole thing. This is just it's so artful. It's so perfectly built up. It happens so quickly, and the visuals around it. I mean, we talked about Paul and his shirt, but there's also a quick cut to the uh, like dimpled glass window behind them, frosted glass, I guess you call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the blood sprays against it in a way that outlines all the people standing between the lawnmower and the window. It's amazing. It's so good. And you, I think you also needed to kind of know the lay of the land of that office. Yeah. Which you've lived in. And certainly one of the boldest things that the show ever does is is simply physically relocate the characters. Like when they do that, you feel like you've moved. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes such an impact. And I mean, that's what I just keep coming back to is just the the calibrated control that Matt Weiner and the filmmakers of this show had over what they were putting on the screen. Everything felt considered and tempered and restrained so that when you had a moment like this, it had the impact that it had. I mean, we're doing a podcast about it. Right. So... Uh, yeah, it's it's really, really good. And 
it leads to some of the funniest lines in the history of this very funny show. One minute you're on top of the world. Next, your foot's getting run over by a secretary <laughs> on a lawnmower. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, the guy who plays Mr. Sheffield in the nanny is, is the superior of this guy who got run over. And he's the one who's given the beautiful line in the hospital waiting room. The doctor said he'll never golf again. And he says it. You just could not ask for a better straight face. Oh. It's like it would never even enter into his mind that there's anything funny about this line. They don't even give you a, a dumbfounded reaction shot out of Don or Joan when he says it. Like it just it just continues, and you're left to laugh your fucking ass off right. and try desperately to hear the rest of the dialogue of this scene because you're laughing so hard. In fact, I I think we never see Guy again. No, that's it. He's gone. He's yeah. done. Yep. Which is not brutal. Even, not even in the episode. As yeah. soon as his foot gets lawnmowered, he's just off screen. Because his bosses just sent him out to sea, basically, at that point. He and can't be yeah. he can't be an, an account man and schmooze if he's missing a foot. Right, because then he'll make people uncomfortable, which is the one thing you cannot do you as cannot an account do. man. The thing, to a fault, what the account men do is make their clients comfortable. Comfortable, right. quote unquote. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, there's the bit where Roger Sterling comes into the office to talk to the assembled youngins, and uh, he compares the place to Iwo Jima, and then <laughs> this typically tasteful way of referring to the Second World War. And then uh, Paul Kinsey said he might lose his foot, and he says, right when he got it in the door. And they all crack up. It's so funny. But let me share with you something that I found in the YouTube comments on one of the videos that depicts this scene. Hit me. It's a fellow named John Johnson, not sure if that's his real name, who says, The boss man is good coming in with jokes. He was a vet who saw some shit in the war, and he knew these green boys were not okay watching a man's foot get cut off. (laughs) Wow. Thanks, John Johnson. How about that, huh? How about that? Really wading in there with some trenchant wisdom, you know, camaraderie of the, the trenches. <laughs> trenchant and trenches is probably not great writing. But well, podcast, not Ulysses. So. <laughs> but, you know, it does say he what he's getting at. You may not necessarily agree with everything that this little comment said, but that's how Roger operates is that he he is like a human tension release valve. Like he's. He is a funny he's a funny guy in his own mordant way. And that's so it makes sense. So you basically you have two different kinds of humor emerging from this. You have people being funny on purpose because the incident is is so wild that they want to make a joke out of it. And then you have people who are so self-absorbed that they don't realize that saying things like the doctor said he'll never golf again is funny. It's right. different it's different than a sitcom where you can count on any character, any fucking man jack in a sitcom is going to say something funny. Yes. Because that's what a sitcom is. Here it, it the funny things are being said because that's what makes sense for those characters to say. Right. It proceeds naturally from the characterization that's already been established. Exactly. exactly. Sinjin Powell is an uptight stuffed shirt, so he has no self-consciousness whatsoever 
about how absurd he sounds when he's talking about his like, you know, upper crust, eaten educated problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Roger is Roger. Right. And Roger's whole job depends on him making everything into a joke. Yeah. He's like fucking, I mean, before this, before this character was just run into the ground, he is like Loki. He's like a trickster God. Like, yeah. That's his role throughout the whole series is like, he, he is, he's always got jokes. He's always got jokes. And, you know, t- to his detriment as a person, oftentimes, like Absolutely. he is the guy who performed in blackface, which like two episodes before this or something like that, which was the fucking stunning image. Oh, it's it, so ugly. Or when was, he, uh, God, one of the great things about that episode that I really only picked up the last time that I watched it is when he kisses Jane in blackface and it looks like she's just got shit on her mouth. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. And I, I remember, you know, I think one of the things that emerges, it's not just the stretch of episodes, but it's one thing that Don Draper, the main character can't stand is people being foolish. And I think that bothers him more than almost anything else. Yeah. Like he was a gas, not a gas. That's too strong. He did not like Roger's blackface performance because he found it. It's like he's, he found that Roger was making a fool of himself. He, he didn't, I, I feel as though earlier when he comes across Sal, the creative, you know, part of the creative team, he stumbles across him in, you know, in some sort of liaison with like a bellhop in a hotel. And is Don homophobic? Yeah, you bet. But what bothers him, I think, more is the indiscretion. Right. Because he but finds it. Hot. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, he's not there for this incident, but I think he needed someone like Joan to make the joke for him, you know, to, to make the joke like one minute you're on top of the world, next minute some secretary is running you over with a lawnmower. Don would never say that. No, Because that's not, that's not Don's outlook on life. But Joan, who has just been on top of the world and then had some metaphorical secretary run her over with a lawnmower when her husband who's a piece of shit doesn't get his job. That's a joke that she would naturally make under those circumstances. And it's kind of what John, what Don needs to hear to let some of the tension out of the, out of the incident for him. Uh, Yeah. Joan and Don are such a sparingly used dynamic on that show. They're so seldom alone together on camera. Yeah. And I think it's, in part because they have astonishing chemistry Mm -hmm. and they're two of the most beautiful people on the show and also all of television. Yeah. Just, just they, they, they make you, (laughs) I don't even know what to say. They're so fucking good looking. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you see them in the same room and you're like, okay, fuck. Yep. Fuck right now. And the restraint, of the show to put them together so seldom and to give them this kind of Don is almost like a little boy with her. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. He's laughing at her jokes. He's smiling and looking down when they go out for drinks in a later season. He admits that she scared the hell out of him when he first Mm -hmm. came to Sterling Cooper. You know, she, she's, 
one of the only people who kind of cows him in a way. And even here, as she says goodbye in the hospital waiting room, she kisses him on the cheek. Like he's oh. like, he is like a little boy. Yep. It's beautifully done. It really is. And, and, and it makes that one episode. I mean, God, can you remember watching that episode where they have a drink together? It's the holiday season. And you're just like, it's, it is so wet with sexual tension that like you, you feel like you need a change of clothes afterwards. It's <laughs> fucking crazy. It's fucking the chemistry dirty. that they have. It is crazy. And you, it's like, you, now you understand why they had to keep these two characters apart because if they put them together, it would just, it would take over, it would take over the entire show. Yes. It would be like, I don't even know a comparable example. If you'd made them fuck, like what else could you have done? Right. You've done it. You've, you've, you've run like, uh, you've won the gold medal of, of, of prestige TV sexual tension at that point. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it, I think, and this is purely my own speculation. I think it might've felt too good. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think this is a show that, it doesn't deliver the kind of super. Fe- I mean, it. There are very there are feel good moments throughout. Mad sure, Man. like when Lane fires everyone at the end of season three. Yes, and that's well, a- gentlemen. I suppose you're all fired. <laughs> and that's an interesting. Uh, there's an interesting connection between that and guy walks into an advertising agency. At the end of guy walks into an advertising agency, it feels like it's a reset. But what mm-hmm. we don't know is that it's precipitated the events that will unfold over the rest of the season. Right. Right. It it touches off the British company Putnam Powell and Lowe's decision to sell Sterling Cooper for parts instead. Just really smart storytelling. Yeah. The material with advertisements on Mad Men, I think, was always very sharp and very interesting and and there was a lot to dig your teeth into sink mm-hmm. your teeth into. But even the, the way that it dealt with like corporate speak and business storytelling is so, it keeps it so interesting. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, it, it makes it as scintillating as any of the backstabbing and maneuvering on game of Thrones more so often. Because it's, 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 recognizably real in a way that not that uh, listen i'm not put obviously if you know me at all i'm not pushing for like you know strict kitchen sink realism in, in art and i believe in the value of of metaphor and of spectacle and i can appreciate game of thrones for saying things about power without having relationships that I recognize in my own life. I don't know anybody like the people in Game of Thrones, except maybe I kind of identify with Jon Snow because he's sullen and a, and a teenager who felt misunderstood. And he, I feel we he all dresses probably, in all black. You know? We all probably know a hot pie. That's true. I guess you're <laughs> the most relatable character on the show. Hot pie. You know, hot pie wins. Yep. I, I like hot good. pie. He has that. Damn it, I'm not gonna be able to about gravy. Gravy. Yes, you need the gravy. You cannot give up on the gravy. God, I love that moment when it happened. Oh, it's such a great speech. It's it's just talking about like the extra work needed to make something beautiful. Yep. 
And how if you stop doing it, you're giving up on life. Man, people who said the Game of Thrones writers couldn't write until unless they were adapting directly from Martin, fuck the fuck off. Yeah, I mean, it was never, the show never had even writing, but it was often very good. Yeah. And I I will maintain this right up until the end. I agree with you. Well, that, there's a big surprise. <laughs> I agree with you. Wow, far out, man, far yeah. out. Yeah, next it'll be horsemen in the plaza and plague famine anyway (laughs) well what else we got on this thing we could talk about the show's connection to war because roger mentions iwo jima here and the first invocation of vietnam takes place seconds before this goes down yep that's right they're talking about how no one's going to get sent to vietnam right which is so smart yeah. Because the next thing they do is splatter half the cast in blood. Yes. <laughs> and I, I remember at the time just doing very, very tentative Google searches for Mad Men reviews because I didn't want anything spoiled because I was catching up with it on Netflix DVD to date myself somewhat. And I had found a lot of the discourse around the show in terms of its relationship to 1960s, the socio-political climate, incredibly facile. And because basically they were like, unless the characters are sitting around commenting on the television about, you know, the news, uh, then their blinkered outlook is the show's blinkered outlook. My and not God. their blinkered outlook. One of which, the one of the defining parts of Mad Men is how intentionally it was about like self sequestered conservatives who play at being creative, mm-hmm. and how they have no contact with anyone who is experiencing life in an actual way. Right. It's about the whitest white people you know. Right, and. I would not say that the show lands everything that it wants to land with regard to race, especially, and kind of ironically, when it starts writing black characters, the material is often a little weaker. But every time that it purposefully backgrounds or absents black people, it succeeds at being extremely ugly. Yeah. In a very interesting way. Oh, yeah. I mean, just take Peggy, for example. You know, she's so sympathetic because she's the naive who turns into a sort of a sort of rebel. Like, she's not there to find a, a handsome, rich husband. Right. You know, she finds the creative work more fulfilling. And yet she is the person who's, like, afraid to leave her purse out around right. dawn. When- the person who winds up becoming essentially a slumlord. Yeah, exactly. Like, they don't let these characters off the hook, and they don't create, like, just clear-cut good guys and bad guys in terms of who has the right outlook on things. You know, we've discussed in the past, like, Pete Campbell, who's a dick and and, and kind of a, a schlemiel. He also is the person with the most forward-looking outlook on race based solely on the fact that he thinks it's ridiculous that people would turn down money based on the the color of the hand handing it over to you. Yeah. You know, 
he's he's just he's he's dumbfounded about such an idea. Yeah, it's still money that that moves him. He's just he's seeing opportunities to make money where other people aren't, and he fails to just be like, "Well, I'm so racist that I don't even give a shit." Like, he's right. not quite at that point. To him, the prestige of being white only is less important than the opportunity of expanded profit and market share. Right, right. And the show is always very, very sharp, like you said, about working these things in kind of laterally. Like, you talked about the the show's relationship to war, since this lawnmower scene is bookended by references to Vietnam and and World War II. I remember the first time I watched, I think it's the pilot, and Don goes to take a nap on his couch in his office, and you hear gunshots and explosions. Right. um, Which... The closest comparison I can think of is when Ned Stark is watching Arya train with Ciro Farrell at uh, sword fighting, and right, like and the he noise of to hear the clash of swords and shields. Right, and God, that unnerved me the first time I saw it. You know, because it just told me that the show was going to be honest about what war was. Right, and you know that I learned the same thing from Mad Men during that little moment when he's falling asleep and you hear the sounds that are in his mind effectively. Yeah. This is also the season in which Sterling Cooper is angling to get the business of aerospace military contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, because of course, you know, people like Burt Cooper smell war coming. Right. And that will go on to be a running theme throughout the show, you know, they wind up representing Dow chemical, which mm-hmm. famously made the napalm that was dropped on Vietnam and caused such hellish damage to the country's people and flora and fauna. And in a very quiet way that never becomes preachy or didactic, their advertising firm, their whole lives are interwoven with the selling and outsourcing of violence. This is the one moment where it comes into the office. It's, I think it's a, a, a really, really enlightening lens through which to look at the scene. That this is the, the sort of uh, reification of, of, of violence that just, um, you know, America drunkenly stumbling around the world, lawnmowering people's fucking feet off. Right. These are the, this is the ruling class. Yes, you're right. These are the best and the brightest. Yep. These these are the people on Madison Avenue, the one of the wealthiest streets in the entire world, certainly at the time. And they spend their lives figuring out how to market cigarettes to children and <laughs> you know, talking about how a bomb is the perfect product because it costs a fortune and you only use it once. <laughs> they are they are an arm of imperialism. Yeah. And I think it's a, a really good and bold choice by the show to situate itself with these people who are suave and collected and tasteful but ultimately kind of regressive. Yeah. You are not looking at the bleeding edge of 
culture in the sixties, which I think is something that bothered people, which Yeah. Which is stupid. You were looking at the Henry frank. Kissingers of the world. Yeah, yeah. And things do change and transform over the course of the show as the you know, as it advances from nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy. And by the end, Roger has a mustache and people have longer hair, you know, things like that. And they take acid and they, you know, make from from fucking Dr. Robert from the Beatles song. And, and uh, you know, and that was the acid that was speed, excuse me. And they all take speed and run around the office like crazy people. And, and there are ca- countercultural sort of intrusions, but they're always kind of absurd. Like, think of poor Paul Kinsey. He is left behind when the real brain trust of the operation basically conduct a heist movie on themselves and extract themselves from the agency and start a new rebellious agency. He winds up being, if I'm not mistaken, a Harry Krishner who writes a Star Trek spec script. He does, and it is considered the worst thing everyone who reads it has ever read. There's your counterculture. Uh, I believe that his spec script includes two alien races, the Negrons and the Kakazans, and the Negrons are white and enslave the Kakazans who are black. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Which, look, listen, God loves Star Trek, but if you've seen the, the episode with Frank Gorshin where the people have like half a black face and half a oh. white face... And- and it depends on which side you have the black and the white face. Yeah. Their heart was in the right place, but the execution is like, I don't even know that I can get mad at it because their heart was like, it was so in the right place. But yeah, it, I wouldn't say that I'm mad at it. I just think it's, it's so trivial as to not be worth looking at or thinking about. You, I, I just kind of like, I, I appreciate the kind of golly gee purity of the people looking at things like this make this racism. This makes no darn sense. (laughs) It just makes no sense. Right. And it's like, you're not wrong, but are you substantively engaging with anything that actual racism proceeds from? No, not really. Right. Right. Yeah. When Mad Men tackles counterculture, Peggy goes to the screening of an experimental film that's very much sort of on the edge of Warhol's world. Mm-hmm. Um, she's brought there by a, a lesbian photographer who's a great little recurring character. I think she's played by Zosha Mamet, who I love. Right. And it's not absurdly pretentious, but it is silly and it's transparent that these are, are, rich kids playing rebel. Mm. We never see serious activists. We see the beatniks who hang around at the edges of circles like Dawn's circle because they can suckle on them. Right. Yeah. You've got kind of the, you know, besides his artist girlfriend in the first season, in this episode, you have those two guys who are like kind of the hipster (laughs) ad guys. Right. One of whom is from Sweden or something. And he's and, gay. Yes. And like they're like the cool members of the Sterling Coup crew at this point. Right. And they don't last super long. No, they don't. But they're unbelievable squares. Right. And I think you talked about flexing earlier. 
the biggest flex that this show ever pulled off, maybe the biggest flex that any show in the past 25 years has pulled off, is they fucking licensed a fucking Beatles song. Not just any Beatles song, but Tomorrow Never Knows. Yep. Don listens to some of it and is like, I've had enough. And he turns the fucking record player off. It's an incredible, incredible fucking scene. You pay for the song and then you play a minute of it. It cost them, I want to say, a quarter of a million dollars. That sounds about right. Yeah. It was. It blew the budget for songs. Now, Not that they didn't use other enormously popular... I mean, they had Satisfaction. They had a fucking montage of Satisfaction, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Not a montage, but like when Don is kind of living the single life and he's like a cool guy. Right. Like, you know. But the Beatles is sacrosanct and impossible to... Unless for some reason you were Nike in like the in like the late eighties and early nineties when when Yoko was feeling particularly forgiving and let them use instant karma after the revolution debacle, they're untouchable. You only get to use covers when you when when you wanna use Beatles music. Except this this show had the fucking clout to be like, We're gonna use an actual Beatles song, not just any Beatles song, one of like their five or six most groundbreaking songs, a song so futuristic that the chemical brothers could basically remake it in the mid to late nineties as setting sun with Noel Gallagher and have a huge hit on the cutting edge of electronic music with it. And Don just shuts it off. He doesn't get it. Yeah. The world has moved on past him. Yeah. You know, one element of this episode that we haven't discussed that also builds to an incredibly hilarious joke that plays exactly like something from a horror movie is Sally's fear of baby Jean. Oh yeah. She, her grandfather has just died and her grandfather was the most attentive and supportive member of her family toward her. You know, he's the only person who told her she could do whatever she wanted He's the only person who asked her her opinions for things, spent time with her, took her seriously. And he's, you know, I mean, he's a character on Mad Men. It's not like he's a saint. Right. But it's devastating to her. And the episode after her grandfather dies, her baby brother is born and is named after him. And so in Guy Walks Into an Advertising Agency, Sally is afraid of Gene. She won't go near him. She doesn't want to look at him or be in the room with him. And it comes out when Betty very sweetly gives her a Barbie and says that it's from baby Gene and that he wants to be her friend. She lets out that he has the same name. He sleeps in his room. He looks just like him. <laughs> and, you know, she's afraid that he has Edgar Allan Poe's Legeid himself. Yes. <laughs> and the the climax of all this is that she throws the Barbie out her window. And when he comes home at night, Dawn sees it and brings it back up into her room. And then she wakes up in the middle of the night. All <laughs> that has gotten itself back into her room and just screams inconsolably. Which, of course, is like a classic haunted doll movie beat. Yeah. So it's strange to see how much horror influence there is throughout this episode. 
And I think through a lot of the strongest episodes in the show, because as we were discussing earlier, like the, 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 the control that the show had over tone and um, yeah, tone, yeah. almost like room tone, almost like it was so, so specifically calibrated that when you had an episode, like let's say far away places where you have the acid trip and you have this sort of weird, someone's missing at the Howard Johnson's and like, it's very Twin Peaks. It's very Twin Peaks. And of course they use a lot of Twin Peaks or Twin Peaks and not a lot, I guess, but enough to be fucking noticeable. Uh Twin Peaks and David Lynch actors. Oh man. Uh, yeah. Mansion Amic shows up. Yep. For uh, a fever and, dream episode. Yeah. Where Don hallucinates that he strangles her and hides her under his bed. Which is so telling and gross and evocative. Yep. Yep. That that's how he thinks of his sexuality and of his past. And then there's Patrick Fischler who plays mm-hmm. Jimmy Barrett. And I, I think we've talked about this, but my personal favorite is Laura Palmer's father, Ray Wise, who plays a high ranking official at Dow Chemical who is, you know, responsible for an unbelievable amount of slaughter and chaos and horror in the world. And he is just the most vacant, ridiculous, inoffensive man you could imagine. He he looks like someone deflated a grandpa. (laughs) He has a, a funny anecdote about how now that he's retired, he's started to learn how to cook. He even made a pop tart. (laughs) and it really is like something just crept out of another world you know yeah that that is an actor who just carries twin peaks with him like an aura he's so fucking good in twin peaks and in firewalk with me Um, some of the greatest acting i've ever seen acting ever done yep yep and you know again i think throughout the reason that the horror adjacent material on the show was so effective is because it wasn't trafficking in that frequently, um, barely at all. So when it did come in, it had more impact. I mean, that's a, it's, it's a very simplistic thing to say, but imagine what had to go into this show so that every little, every you know, even slight deviations into the surreal or into the sinister had the impact that they have. I mean, I I still think about faraway places and get like mildly freaked out, and yeah. nothing happens. Like the point is that nothing happened. But the it's point a, it's is a, that a eerie episode. Yeah, yeah, and uh, or mystery date. Hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm where everyone is talking about this mass murder and it's, you know, none of these people are connected to it. No one has any personal stake in it, but it's omnipresent. Or even just things like uh, when Betty is on drugs prior to little Jean's birth and she hallucinates, she hallucinates Medgar Evers. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. That's, Ooh. Just incredible. Yeah. I think that Sally had been learning about him earlier. Mm-hmm. 
it's it, 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 it's easy to shock people if you're after it. I think it's harder to maintain a kind of almost courtly atmosphere yeah. that Mad Men does. You know, it's almost like it, it does feel in its way closer to dangerous liaisons than yeah. anything else because you're dealing with cultural mores and strictures and you know at a time of change for sure right um, and and above all performance right yes imaging i mean that's that's don's whole thing he's not don draper for right. christ's sake right everything everything is a performance yeah the don draper does not exist don draper literally died and this is the the person that's standing in his place, assuming his identity. Right, he's a man from nowhere, which is kind of creepy. Uh, like it, yeah. Like it, it, that is a horror premise. Like I've taken the place of this person. It I'm absolutely not the, is right. And there, there are other horror elements. There's a note of home invasion in a later season when a woman breaks into Don's apartment while Sally and Bobby are there. Mm-hmm. and robs Don and also manages to come up with semi-plausible lies that suggest she might actually know him. Right. And also another moment of gore that we have overlooked is the nipple. <gasps> the nipple. Ginsburg, of course. Right. So yeah, Ginsburg cuts off his nipple and gives it to Peggy like, you know, Van Gogh in the ear. Mm. And I think all the time about the image of the severed nipple in that neat little box with gauze packing. And I feel like it's a really good encapsulation of the way that the show deploys horror imagery out of nowhere in this perfectly blocked and framed show, every element of which is so thoughtful and so artful every person in which is such a conscious self-production suddenly there's this single point of total revulsion and horror yeah and thinking about it ginsburg as a character he his high points come from sort of a horror sphere in a way. Like he, he, he's like the coolest, he's the coolest creative guy yeah. on the show and, and the kind of the most in tune with, with countercultural sensibilities. Right. Yeah. But here's two things about Ginsburg. Oh, one is that he tells a story to Peggy in faraway places that he was born in a concentration camp. We don't know if it's true. That's but that's his self-conception, it seems. He also says uh, that that's what his, his adoptive father tells him, but he considers it impossible. Right, right. And then he has the, the kind of famous battle of ideas for some kind of frozen treat. Snow cone. Yeah. And, and his idea is that, you know, you just see like people getting hit in the face with it, like cops and teachers and stuff like that. And Don overrules it with like a a, a devil, right? Who's, like, who's taking a taste of the snowball and saying, "Right, 
changes, changes everything. everything. <laughs> right, a snowball's chance in hell. Yeah. Right. So he's a character who's been con- who's been connected to real world horrors and kind of you know the phony horror of like a commercial version of hell or whatever. And he is the person who is kind of. I always felt that he was sort of like the the Judas goat for uh, what America did to the world in the 1960s. Like he is the horror of what America wrought abroad coming home and, and frankly, domestically being embodied by a person who simply can't fucking hack it. You know, he can't hack it. He's that's a famous from full metal jacket. Like, like can you hack it or not? Like that's, if you can't hack it, you're Vincent D'Onofrio in full metal jacket. Or your Ginsburg cutting off his nipple because of the computers. Which is was... also uh, a fairly extensive 2001 reference mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where the, the computer functions as a stand in for the ominous voice of Hal and the presence of the monolith. Yeah. And the computer salesman and technician is continuously conflated with Satan. Don even tells him when Don is being hauled away drunkenly, you have many names. Huh. I, I like, frankly, I just love when shit like that happens. I, oh, I, the, I, the, I love a sort of, uh, King James version type line dropped in the middle of something mundane. Yes, absolutely. Like that reminds me, uh, take it back to Twin Peaks of of to when Philip Jeffries shows back up in the FBI headquarters and points at Coop and says, "Who do you think that is there?" That was so scary at a time when it meant nothing. Yep. It meant nothing at the time. It meant nothing for twenty five years. Incredible. <laughs> then it finally meant something. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Sorry, I get a little worked up when I talk about this stuff. No, it's great. It's yeah. great. So yeah, this is uh, this is the episode where the war comes home to Sterling Cooper, and it's yeah. both funny and disgusting, and people are nauseated and amused by it. And then there's never anything on that scale again. It feels like I, a good place to stop. I was, I was just about to say the same thing. Great minds, same gutters. Well, thank you, everybody. This has been Cut to Black. I have been Sean T. Collins. And I have been Gretchen Falker-Martin. And we'll continue to be after the episode wraps. Let's hope so. All right. We'll see you next time, everybody.